let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to this passage. It's a pretty meaty one tonight. Our great God, you are our mighty king. You rule with power. You're clothed with majesty. And you, you are gracious and compassionate and abounding in love. Tonight, please help us to rest in your kindness that we might join with all your creation in praising you and declaring you as king. Amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever noticed that it's often easier to be magnanimous in victory rather than defeat? You know when you're losing and you kind of feel like you've got to scrap for every little thing, complain against every kind of call or event that goes against you, but somehow when you're winning, well, you're less likely to sweat the small stuff. Well, maybe you've noticed this, a bit related. When, when someone's secure and comfortable in who they are and what they're doing, they're much more likely to be able to deal with criticism or opposition without getting defensive. But when someone is insecure and uncertain and worried about losing face, well, then they're much more likely to come across as arrogant or brittle. Perhaps this explains why so many conversations in our public square sound so shrill. There's a defensiveness when people are afraid or anxious. And maybe you've noticed that in other people. And maybe you also notice that in yourself. So how can we find the strength and security to be humble, not arrogant, gentle, not defensive? what we're thinking about tonight and we're continuing this series in Matthew's gospel as Alison said this series is called the call of the king and tonight this passage not only calls us to be more gentle and humble but it also gives us the strength to do it and before we dive into the passage I'm going to get us to watch this brief video up on the screen it's called the gospel in 90 seconds we're watching it not just because I absolutely love it and just am blown away that you could, anyway. Um, but we're watching it. it. It doesn't directly relate to this passage, but it gives us a language, kind of a, a framework, as we come to this passage to help us understand it. So um, I'll just turn this thing on, and uh, let's have a look up on the screen. In the beginning, there was light and life and love. There was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And everything has come from light and life and love. And out of this has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that this world is not like that. I know this world is not like that. I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light. And when you turn from the light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? When you turn from life, where else do you go but death? So this is the kind of world we live in. But what does, what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble? Love says, your pit will be my pit. Your plight will be my plight. Your debts will be my debts. Your darkness will be my darkness. Your death will be my death. So who is Jesus? Jesus is love come down. The son of the father comes and, and becomes our brother to be with us in the darkness, 
To take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, even to take that death that we all deserve for turning from God, took that on himself on the cross, plunged it down into the hell that it deserves, and he rose up again to light and life and love, and he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life. We get his father as our father. We get his spirit as our spirit. We get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. So do you want Jesus? All right. So uh, let's dive into the passage now. And uh, it'd be great if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, from verses 15 to 32, what we're looking at tonight. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to consider the way of the servant. We're going to then look at the clash of the kingdoms. And finally, we're going to think about the call of the king. So here we go. Think about the way of the servant. Um, If you were here last week, you'll remember that there's this sense of growing conflict in Matthew chapter 12 between Jesus and this group of Jewish religious leaders called Pharisees who were very powerful and very pious which means that they were very passionate about keeping God's laws. They felt that if they could keep God's laws perfectly, then that would purify the nation of Israel. And so on the other hand, they were very harsh and judgmental to anyone who couldn't live up to their standards and keep the law as well as they did, which was basically everyone else couldn't really do that. But last week we saw that Jesus exposed their legalism for what it was. They're so passionate about the law and Jesus says, no, you have completely got it wrong. You completely misunderstood what God is all about. And so at the end of the passage, these Pharisees, they go away furious and determined to kill Jesus. It's actually a classic example of that kind of brittleness I started by talking about. The Pharisees are so brittle and defensive, they can't handle being challenged by Jesus. They're much more concerned about their reputation than doing what is right. And so that's the background Uh, As we pick up this story in verse 5, sorry, verse 15, uh, we see that Jesus has become aware of this plot to kill him, and so he moves on to another town. But the crowds follow him. And and this is a group of the the downest and outest of downest out and outs in society. These These are the bruised and the burned out and the broken and the sick and the sorry. And they they come to Jesus. And and almost in passing, Matthew tells us that Jesus heals them. It's amazing. Can you imagine being there and seeing that happen? And yet, it's like Matthew actually wants us to focus on something else. It's almost like there's something that's even more amazing than that. It's what comes next. After Jesus heals them in verse 16, he orders them not to tell anyone about it. So just consider for a moment how different that is from the Pharisees who are so concerned about their own reputations. And consider just how different that is from our own culture of celebrity and oversharing and self-promotion. I mean, if I could pull off even just one miraculous healing, I would totally be getting a selfie with the person I just healed and, and plastering it all over Facebook. Yeah? But Jesus heals a whole crowd, and not only does he not post about it, but he tells them not to post about it either. It's kind of like when you're in one of those weddings and the bride and groom want to keep control of kind of the photos when they're going to be released, and so they say, please don't put this on social media. 
bit of a different motivation maybe. But anyway, Jesus, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. That's, insane. that's, that's amazing. He's, he's shockingly humble. And yet Matthew says, actually, we shouldn't be surprised. Actually, this is what we should expect. See that in verses 17 to 21. He said, he, he's saying this is why Jesus is like this. Hundreds of years ago, this prophet called Isaiah wrote about someone called the servant of God. And that's what we read about in that first reading that we had from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah also writes about this servant in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 52 and 53. These beautiful passages are known as the servant songs in Isaiah. And they're all about this promise of God that he will send someone to be a servant to redeem his people and to bring hope to the nation. And in a world of brittleness and a world of brokenness, this servant really stands out because he's so different from everyone else. So listen to what he's like from Isaiah chapter 42. And Matthew quotes from this. He says, He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. Matthew says, Duh. This is why Jesus is so humble. He's this servant. His job is to bring justice to the nations, but in this context, the kind of justice he's talking about is not the justice of a courtroom, but the justice of an advocate, someone who lifts up the lowly. So uh, one expert on the Middle East, uh, Kenneth E. Bailey, this is how he talks about this justice. He says, justice as understood by this special servant of God, is neither retributive justice, which is when you harm me, so I'm going to get you back, nor is it equal application of the law, I pay my taxes and therefore you must too, that's kind of justice. But here justice means compassion for the weak and exhausted. And so the servant does not come to wrangle or fight. You know, he doesn't even raise his voice. Even when he's under attack, he's not going to cry out or complain in bitterness or rage. His is a gentle justice. This is what the servant is like. And so Isaiah uses these uh, two metaphors here, which Matthew picks up as well, to kind of make this point. This is what the servant is supposed to be like. This is the way of the servant. And so the first metaphor there is, he will not break a bruised reed. Reeds were very common uh, throughout the ancient Middle East. They used them for a variety of things. They could use these reeds for pens. They could also use them to make houses and boats. But they were fragile. A reed's really fragile. And so if it's damaged, it's basically useless. You wouldn't use it for anything except maybe you might break it up and throw it on the fire. Second, Isaiah says that this servant will not quench a smoldering wick. And this is another familiar image in the ancient world. So that guy, Kenneth Bailey, writes about this. He explains that in the ancient world, to kind of give light to your home, you'd have these little grey lamps filled with olive oil and the wicks hung out of a spout on the lamp on the side of it. And as the oil would run low, they'd start to splutter and smoke. And so a smouldering wick was really annoying because it would fill your house with smoke. And it was actually also dangerous as well because it could get to the point where it might break off and set fire to your house. And so in the ancient world, they'd put a bowl of water under the, where the wick's kind of hanging out in case it broke off to quench the fire. But Isaiah says that the servant of God will not break a bruised reed, even though it's useless. 
He will not quench a smoldering wick, even though it's really annoying and quite possibly dangerous. He won't trample on the weak to get his job done. Why? Well, because his job is to bring justice to them. He is there to serve. This is the way of the servant. And so Jesus doesn't care about his ego or his reputation. He's not insecure or task-focused so that he leaves uh, a trail of collateral damage in his wake. He's so secure. He's so sure of who he is and what he's doing and where he's at. He's so strong that he can serve. He can be humble. He can handle losing it. Uh, Isaiah says this throughout the servant songs, and so he says it again in Isaiah 53. This is probably the most famous of the servant songs, and I've just put out three small parts from it here. But this is what he says about this servant being able to handle losing because he's so strong. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. He's the bruised reed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. His voice will not be heard on the streets, remember. This is what Isaiah is saying. The servant has the strength to be able to suffer for others. He has the strength not to whinge or whine. He can handle, to use the language from the video, he can handle darkness and death and disconnection for our sake. And so that's why Matthew is not surprised when Jesus orders the crowds to be quiet, to not tell anyone what he's done. He doesn't crave their approval. He is strong enough to serve. That's the way of the servant. But how can you be like that? And that brings us to point two. The clash of kingdoms. Let's get back into Matthew chapter 12 here, if you've got your Bibles open there. In verse 22, you can see the crowds now bring a man to Jesus who's possessed by an evil spirit. And just as a sort of a side note, we might kind of struggle with that concept. Like, um, you know, was this some sort of just ancient naivety, this idea that someone could have an evil spirit? Um, And we don't really have time to go into this in great detail here. But it's worth just noticing that Jesus clearly believes there's evil in the world. And secondly, though, on the flip side, that he doesn't attribute every sickness or sadness to evil spirits. It's not like this kind of simplistic, naive understanding that if someone's got a cold, they must have an evil spirit. It's not like that at all. Actually, he's got quite a complex understanding of the brokenness of humanity, that there are physical and psychological and spiritual factors often at play. In fact, I wonder if Jesus might suggest we are a bit naive if we think that the problems we see in humanity have no spiritual cause. So let's get back to it. This man is broken, right? He's broken spiritually and he's also blind and he's mute and so he's broken physically and and he's probably broken socially as well. He's probably very disconnected. And yet the crowd takes him and they bring him to Jesus and what happens? Jesus heals him. And it's amazing. The crowd is astonished. This guy can see and speak 
and they're blown away. But once again, Matthew wants us to focus on something else. He wants us to focus less on the healing than on what happens next because it sparks a controversy. The crowds are asking, can can this be the son of David? This this can't be the son of David, can it? Can you imagine the kind of questions rippling through the crowd? Remember, you you remember who David is though, right? The great king of Israel and God had promised that a son of David One of David's descendants would one day come and conquer Israel's enemies and set God's people free. And they're saying, is this the son of David? Man, that's an explosive kind of question to ask in that context, right? Because what happens next? Here come the Pharisees. For them, this is, this is like just a knife in the back because they've, they've set themselves against Jesus and now the crowds are wondering if Jesus is the promised king. And so if they want to protect their reputations, there's really only one thing they can do and that's discredit him. So let's see what comes next. This is, just, this is great, this dialogue. You've just got to get into it. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this fellow casts out demons. Notice that they don't try to deny that Jesus has been doing miracles. They'd lose all credibility if they did that because the crowds, they've seen it. So instead they offer an alternate explanation for his power. The name Beelzebul there, it's a name that the Jews came up with. It was a kind of an insult against one of the ancient gods of the Philistines. Uh, They originally actually called him Baalzebub which means Lord of Flies, which is kind of not the sort of name you want if you're a god. Um, it's not, it's, you can see it's a pretty good sledge, right? You're the Lord of Flies. You know, it's not very impressive. But Beelzebul actually takes that insult a step further. It's like they've given it an extra little twist because Beelzebul actually means Lord of Dung. Now, by Jesus' day, Beelzebul, Lord of Dung, was a kind of an insult to apply not just to that God of the Philistines, but kind of more generally to the source of evil behind all the problems in the world, to the ruler of demons or to Satan, the Lord of Dung. He's the reason why life stinks. And so the Pharisees, yeah, good one, hey, the Pharisees try to associate Jesus with him. They say, if he's able to command demons, then he must be operating under the power of the ruler of demons. He's got to be in league with evil himself. And just think, that makes sense, right? Surely the ruler of demons has the power to command his demons. Maybe that's where Jesus gets his authority from. But I see you thinking, hang on a second. Jesus is evil and he's on Satan's side then of course he would heal people and cast out demons that makes no sense at all how long do you reckon it took for the Pharisees to uh, realize how ridiculous that sounded Well, in case they haven't worked it out, Jesus now exposes their lack of logic in verse 25. See this? Uh, Matthew writes, He knew what they were thinking and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Do you get the point, right? It's just common sense. Everyone knows that civil wars are devastating, whether it's a kingdom or a city or just just a household or an organization like a church. If there is infighting, it's devastating. It tears everything apart. Um, I played a fair bit of soccer growing up, and I can uh, distinctly remember those moments in a high-pressure game when you would see the other teams start to fight amongst themselves and they'd start bickering, and they'd start blaming each other, and then the kind of guys who thought they were kind of all that, they'd they'd start hogging the ball instead of passing the ball. And in that moment, you knew you'd won. Because no kingdom, and certainly no sporting team, that is divided against itself will stand. So here's Jesus' point. It's pretty hard to refute. Why on earth would Satan cast out one of his own demons? Why would the king of darkness and death and disconnection bring light and life and love into the world? He would be tearing his own kingdom apart. He would be doing God's work for him. The Pharisees are silent. Jesus has exposed not just their lack of logic, but actually a deep spiritual darkness which fuels their hatred. See, there is a spiritual battle going on. Jesus wants us to see that there is a clash of kingdoms between the kingdom that brings darkness and death and disconnection and the kingdom that brings light and life and love. And Jesus really wants us to see this. Not only because it explains why he's come to the downtrodden with gentle justice to set them free from it, but also because it explains how he's able to do it. How is Jesus able to make himself so vulnerable and exposed to the slander of the Pharisees? How is Jesus able to heal crowds and crowds of people without ever needing to gain attention for himself? How is the king of glory able to humble himself to become a servant and to live a life that looks so much like losing? It's because the servant knows that the king will win. The healings prove it. That's that's what Jesus says there in verse 28. He says, but if it's by the spirit of God instead of the spirit of Beelzebub that I cast out demons, and that means the kingdom of God has come to you. (laughs) See, Jesus' healings are a sign that he has the power to win. In fact, it's a sign that he is already winning over the Lord of the Darnels. That's what he's saying in verse 29 when he tells this great story about overpowering a strong man. See that verse 29? He asks, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. Now you might have never thought about this. You might have never 
plans to plunder the house of a strong man. It's not, you know, generally a, and a, you know, a, a great idea, I suppose. But this, actually, this is more like a scene from a Hollywood blockbuster. Jesus is putting himself in the position of Jason Statham or um, Matt Damon. Yeah? This is, this is like the idea, he's, he's taking on this strong man who no one else would ever dare to take on. Maybe he's like some drug cartel boss or something like that. No one else would ever dare stand up to this guy because they're going to end up with their throats slit. But he breaks into this guy's headquarters and he ties him up and he plunders his goods right in front of him. And Jesus says, that's why I can do these miracles. because I have power over the strong man and it's a sign that the king will win. This is the justice that he proclaims to the nations. This is the servant's message of hope that the Lord of darkness and death and disconnection cannot withstand the Lord of light and life and love because Jesus has got the strong man tied up and he's plundering his property. And do you know who his property is? Us. And so his kingdom is advancing one person at a time. This is why he can come as a servant because he knows God's kingdom will win. Bring us to our final point, the call of a king. Here Jesus puts out a really strong challenge and it's, it's a moment where we're just reminded again that Jesus' gentleness is nothing like weakness. See verse 30? He says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's a, a way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not simply about what you believe in your head. It's, it's, it's not simply about the, the religion that you've grown up with. It's not simply about what you do every Sunday night and coming to church. Christianity is about standing with Jesus. And how do you stand with Jesus? You don't do it by overcoming darkness and death and disconnection yourself. Because only Jesus is powerful enough to tie up the strong man. No, you stand with Jesus by trusting that he is strong enough for you. To rescue you, to plunder the strong man for you. You stand with Jesus by trusting that darkness and death and disconnection will be overcome and that God will win victory over the dung in this world and the dung in your life. You stand with Jesus by faith. Trusting that even when you stood against Jesus, he came to stand with you. Even when you were scattered like a lost sheep, he came and gathered you in. That even in this world of darkness and death and disconnection, he entered it into this dung for us. 
and that's how he wins victory over Satan. See, what is Jesus' weapon that allows him to overpower the strong man? Have you ever thought about that? What is his weapon? It's forgiveness. The forgiveness he holds out to us. That is what binds Satan's hands and ties him up in knots because it means that no matter what we've done and no matter how weak we might feel, Satan can no longer accuse us. Do you see that? It makes him powerless. He can no longer condemn us for our sin because Jesus has taken our sin and nailed it to the cross. It means he can no longer try to tell you that you're a loser on the losing side because you stand with the king who is strong and will win. It means that Satan cannot try to tell you that you're a nobody because now you stand with Jesus. You hear those words that God spoke to his servant, only now he says those words to you. Remember what he said? He is my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. When you stand with Jesus, then you are God's servants. He has chosen you. You hear him say to you, here is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. And this is why we can be magnanimous. This is why we can be less defensive. This is why we can be more generous and gentle. This is why we don't have to pump up our own egos. And this is why we can lose well, whether it's losing a client or losing an argument or losing face, we can lose but still be generous because the king has won and we stand with him. And that's what being a Christian is about. If you stand with the Lord of life, then you receive forgiveness, the light and life and love of God because he has destroyed your sin on the cross. But notice there's a flip side. At the end of this passage, Jesus says, if you won't stand with him, you're standing against the one with the power to tie up the strong man. You're standing against the one who brings light and life and love. And so that's what he's talking about in verses 30 and 31 when he talks about there being no forgiveness for the one who speaks against the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who empowers us to live God's will in God's way. And so he's saying, if you live your whole life, not just if you say one word against the Spirit or if you make one decision against God, if you live your whole life not asking for forgiveness, then you won't ever receive it. So, two quick questions to finish off. Remember the question of the crowds, verse 23, can this be the son of David? Can Jesus be my king? Here's our first question. Not just can Jesus be the king, can Jesus be my king? Will I stand with him? Will I trust him to tie up the strong man and bring me light and life and love? You know, maybe tonight you realize that you haven't been standing with Jesus, but maybe you realize that actually there's no place you would rather be. And if that's the case, well, in a little while we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and there's going to be a chance 
to celebrate the victory that Jesus has won. There's going to be a chance to confess your sins and to ask for forgiveness, trusting God to give you light and life and love. And I really encourage you to take part in that. So that's our first question. Can Jesus be my king? Once you're standing with Jesus, there's a second question to ask. How does his victory change how I live? You know, how will his strength help me to serve? How will it change the way I react when someone has it in for me or when someone slanders me? How will it help me not to retaliate if I'm standing in the strength of the king? And how will it change the way I actually move through life How will it change my kind of purpose and my agenda, whether I'm going to work or I'm heading off to uni or I'm going off to school when I'm trying to care for my family or when I'm trying to love my neighbours? How will it help me not to break the bruised reeds or to quench the smouldering wicks? Will I use my power to serve myself? Or will I trust in Jesus' strength and live in light and life and love. Well, the way that we grow more and more to trust Jesus is by feasting our eyes on him, looking at his glory and his goodness to us. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to sing to our king who is good to us. Please sing. the throne of glory nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance 